The hosts feel it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to. Well, we've warned you. Hello, and welcome once again to the Frankencast. I'm the mad scientist, Anthony Bowman. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm joined as always by... That creepy sewer guy that is Eric Velasquez. My pronouns are also he, him. <laughs> uh, so so this week we're also joined by a very special guest. We're really excited to have him on. Um, we've got uh, Reef Tuma with us, the author of Francis and the Monster. Hey, Reef, sir. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. Excited to join you guys on this great podcast. Yeah, glad to have you. Yeah, yeah. We're really excited. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed your book so i was really excited to be able to talk to you about it can i say this um i want to say that if this was made into a movie this would be what i call a christmas movie <laughs> it's weird to say that but it's like the you know uh, like lord of the rings or even you know harry harry potter and all that just it's something like the whole family can go see and enjoy around christmas time yeah i like that there's <laughs> even a little bit of a snowstorm thrown in there for exactly. good measure yep. yeah yeah one of the fun things about uh, writing this book was getting to explore some uh, traditions and some uh, festivals and holidays that are not, you know, not American centric, setting the book in Europe and Switzerland specifically, and getting to kind of explore some of the holidays and traditions that they have over there that, that uh, tie into the story a little bit was a lot of fun. So no Christmas, but certainly some, some fun wintertime uh, right, exactly. traditions. What, what's that holiday called? Shadiga? Tashigata. Tashigata. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. That's that's my at least that's my um, best attempt at pronouncing it correctly. Better than what I did. So, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, I really I thought that was really interesting too. There there was a lot of little bits, and there was like the stuff with the bear pits, and I was like, what is yeah. like this is a strange pull? And then I looked at it, and I was like, oh no, that's like legitimately a thing there, like that. Okay, you didn't just make that up out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah I mean, you absolutely. Did your research. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I, I always specify, you know, I, I did my research, and then I took some creative liberties with all of it. So I don't pretend to be an expert on on uh, Switzerland or Swiss culture, but I, I certainly have a deep appreciation for it and wanted to let the character of the the city of Bern, Switzerland, really play a, a major role in the story and give it a lot of col- of its color and character and, and context. So that was one of my favorite parts of, of the, the writing process. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely did make the city come alive. Uh, it's like, you really feel like you're there as you're, as you're reading through the story. Yeah. And I appreciate because initially whenever I was reading, I was like, Oh, this is going to be kind of a world trotting or globe trotting story. Right. But no, it's centralized in one town but you go through the entire city. Yeah, there's a lot to explore in that city. It's uh, The city of Bern is um, the old town um, section of Bern. 
dates back to uh, the medieval era. I mean, it's been around for centuries and most of the architecture and the, the buildings and the streets and some of the, the structures around the river are, they date back to, I think I'm probably misremembering this, but I think like the 1600s. And so, you know, hundreds of years of history all built up in that old town and just the, the incredible architecture and the, the red clay roofs and, and everything. It was just, uh, it was, it really drew me in as soon as I started looking into it as, as a place where the story might be said. So have you, have you been there? I was hoping to go. And then, uh, my plans were derailed as so many plans were <laughs> by the entire world locking down, uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that was really my, <laughs> that was my chance. And the pandemic kind of, uh, kind of took that chance away, but <laughs> I, I really tried to, I, I did a lot of um, uh, talking back and forth with some museum curators in, uh, in the city and uh, did some video tours and um, like virtual tours and things like that, just to try to get as best I could, a feel for really being there. But I absolutely hope to get a chance to go now that, uh, now that the lockdown has ended and things have opened up a little bit. I'm hoping to, to get the opportunity to do that soon. Yeah. I feel like you show up with that, with your book and it'll be a passport right in. They'll, they'll yeah, right. welcome yeah. you with open arms. <laughs> so about, about the book. So obviously there's a lot of names from the, the history of uh, Frankenstein going all throughout it. Uh, we've got, we've got Fritz from the, the original movie. We have uh, Shelley, and uh, you know Mary and a few other people. Mm-hmm. What is what would be the biggest influence on this? Would you say? Would you say it's more the movie or the book or both? Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. I think that the the seed for this story, kind of the the real inspiration for this, came kind of in in a in, in sort of a, a two hit combo. There was obviously Frankenstein, and for me the the movie was the entry point, but then I think the the contrast between what you get with the movie as as an introduction to the world of Frankenstein, the contrast to what you then read in the book, and just kind of the difference in tone and the 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 depth of the of the themes and and things that you get in the book that are really, you know, you get them a little bit in the movie, but it's a totally different experience, and yet you know, really complementary. It just shows kind of how how varied the the, the different Frankenstein interpretations and and the stories that can come out of that can be but then it was also uh kind of the second piece really that that ended up taking that the love of the frankenstein movie and and the the original book was um and kind of taking that and and turning it into a story that felt like it was something that i had to tell something that was mine was actually when i um i happened to rewatch the magician's apprentice section of the movie Fantasia, and obviously mm-hmm. the Magician Apprentice is a story that dates back, you know, well before Fantasia. It's one of the oldest stories that's still uh, kind of in the in circulation, I guess you could say. But I watched that, I rewatched that, and seeing the the way that this Magician's Apprentice Mickey, in this case, um, you know, he he really wants to jump ahead of where he's at as uh, in his in his studies with his master and. 
uh, he's doing all these menial chores and feels like he's not getting his his due. He's not he's not getting his opportunities that he deserves. So he starts taking matters into his own hands and ends up creating just an absolute nightmare for himself, and has to has to deal with that and ends up creating this this terrible situation that is all uh, all his fault. Um, and that I love I love that story. And when I started to kind of see it. it when I started to realize how much it reminded me of the Frankenstein story, those two inspirations, those two kind of seeds started to, to create something new. Um, some third thing in my mind that ended up becoming Francis and the monster. Yeah. I definitely can see, uh, the magician's apprentice is kind of Francis's whole vibe, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And when the, when the, that, that idea first came, um, I was actually um, studying um, film at the time um, at a brief stint in film school. And that was kind of uh, what I was, what I dreamt of being at the time was a, was a, a director and I was very into stop motion animation. And so I always kind of saw it as being this stop motion animation short. And at the time the, it was very much a, um, you know, kind of a tragic morality tale uh, and the, the character um, was this horrible little boy who had no redeeming qualities and, you know, really deserved everything that he got at the end. Um, but as, as I started playing with the, with that concept and the idea, it, it started to take on a lot more shades of gray and, and really sort of started to evolve into, um, a totally different character. And, and, um, you know, Francis came out of that and I, I'm really, really happy with where she ended up and, who she ended up being and how, how her story ended up coming together. Yeah. Francis is a, a really, really strong protagonist that, uh, you know, I mean, ta- you know, talking about the, you know, the original novel, like having the protagonist here be, you know, a young girl, like, like Mary Shelley, like that, that felt, uh, felt right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, she's just such a rich character with like, you know, the anxiety yeah. that she deals with. I really like the way that you kind of handle neurodivergence and like social fears and, and, you know, being outside of your comfort zone. Um, yeah. Like, I think that that's something that, uh, you know, it, kids reading this, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot can relate. And if they can't, they can probably say like, Oh, this maybe will help me understand my friend who sometimes doesn't want to do things or, you know, kind of feels weird when we go to the mall or whatever, you know, I guess the mall is a, wherever you go to hang well, out when we're, when we're playing roblox together over uh, over discord yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go yeah I, it was a lot of fun to write francis and i think that um the just kind of the idea that there are so many different types of of intelligence and you know francis is very much focused on one of those types of intelligences uh, you know she she has these brilliant parents. She has this legendary scientist for a great grandfather. And so she really sees one path towards kind of validating herself or, or, or feeling that kind of validation as, as who she sees herself to be. And I think that everybody she meets along the way sort of shows her a slightly different uh, path towards being a whole person or, or having something to contribute to a um, to the world or to a friendship or, or even, um, even to her own life. And so it was really fun to be able to kind of take this character who, um, really hasn't gotten out much to say the least Mm -hmm. and, 
has a very limited worldview that's that's she's kind of inherited from from the, the family business and um, and really throwing her in situations where she she had what she needed to to get you know to a certain point and then she really needed to start relying on other people to get the rest of the way and I, I think that's that's just that that ended up being ended up being uh, really the fun of writing this story was throwing her together with these very different characters and just sort of seeing seeing what happened what came out of that yeah each character yeah. Is, is very interesting <laughs> as the aforementioned there's a sewer guy, sewer guy um <laughs> what was the alchemist lady's name was it not yeah madame melina melina moon Malina, thank you yeah she was great yeah she's a really really because like that's a character that you know like to start with, you know, she's very like intimidating and kind of scary and you know mysterious. Um, and in a lot of versions of this story, like I, I would, I could see her just staying that. But like as they spend, and they don't spend that much time with her. They're there, you know, an hour or two in the, the shop. But like mm -hmm. she really opens up as this very kind and caring woman who, like, you know, genuinely wants to, uh, you know, make sure these kids are safe and and that you know things work out for them. And yeah, I thought that was a, a really, really nice um, development in a very short period of time with her. Yeah, she was, a, she was, she was a lot of fun. It was fun to get into her backstory a little bit and kind of imagine where she came from and who she was and, um, and then kind of letting her uh, dole that out in, in her own way in her, you know, she, she letting her kind of decide what she shared of that and why and, um, and Francis reaction to, to who she was and what she learned. I think that was, that was a lot of fun. Also, do you know Helga? Because I feel like, you know, you know, this character. <laughs> Cause I've met, I've met Helga. Before. You know, Helga, she is one of the, there, there are two characters in this book mm -hmm. that went onto the page, like fully formed and never changed. And one of them was Hobbes and the other was Helga. And I, I genuinely have no idea where Helga came from, but, um, you know, she just, I just, I, when, you know, in, in any great monster story, I feel like there is the bystander mm -hmm. who, uh, who just gets way too wrapped up in their role as the bystander. Right. And so, you know, that's kind of, that, uh, that's, that's a character that I've always loved. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's a, if it's, a, if it's a real trope or if it's just something that tends to, um, that I've noticed along the way, but she just, she just really, really enjoys the spotlight a little bit too much <laughs> and getting to getting that close encounter is all she needed. And, uh, she just was, she was off. <laughs> yeah. Loved it. Well, speaking of, of the other character you mentioned Hobbes. So like, you know, you're talking a lot about like, uh, the names being references to things so is is Hobbes is that name? The only thing I could think of was like Thomas Hobbes, which seems like a little <laughs> bit of a stretch. But no, that's one of the few. That is not an Easter egg to any Frankenstein lore. Um, there are others that um, that are deeper cuts that um, maybe you noticed or maybe you didn't. But um, but Hobbes is not one of them. Hobbes is, you know, I think that. He is kind of the, the counterpoint, I think, to sort of what, what Frankenstein is. He, it's, he's kind of an anachronism in the, in the book because he's obviously far beyond what was possible in, in 1939. Well, to um, he's far beyond what's possible today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 
but at the same time, you know, so is Frankenstein. Um, and so, but what, what I, I think kind of where he came from, I, I don't know that I, I, this is really like hindsight because, um, as with so many things that a writer does, uh, there, there, it just sort of happened. And now I'm, I'm kind of like, Hmm, why did I do it that way? Where did he come from? But I think he, he's kind of a, a counterpoint to Frankenstein. He's sort of like a, a flip side, like a, um, you know, a, a, another possible alternate universe Frankenstein where, um, instead of being this, this kind of new creation in this terrifying, uh, strong adult body, he's really kind of, uh, this old soul in this new technology. And it's, it's kind of the, the exact opposite in some ways, but still somebody who was created and has to come to terms with that. That's right. And the, the way that his relationship with Francis develops over the course of the story um, is you know, like, it kind of snuck up on me. Cause like, you know, it doesn't like the story's about the monster and Francis trying to, but like their the way that she like kind of resents him and then slowly like her, becomes friends with him. Um, it, it like, it was really uh, a compelling part of the story. And, and you know, the way that his situation kind of ends, I don't, I don't know how spoilery we want to get here, but like, <laughs> the tragedy there was, was, right, uh, yeah. uh, was, surprising and i was like i was not expecting that it, it, it got to me yeah yeah what did you do that to us at the end <laughs> i know i'm sorry really i'm good. sorry well you know with hobbs her story really begins with hobbs and you know he is i think what what was interesting as the the story kind of was developing as i was drafting it and revising it her relationship with hobbs and kind of what what he does to her uh the way he changes her dynamic um, when she's left alone, left at home alone by her parents, um, really kicks off everything that follows. And so it, it kind of only seemed fitting that, that that would be kind of the relationship that, that sort of defined her arc and the way that she changed and the way that she developed throughout the story. So she, you know, in a lot of ways, he's as much the, the catalyst for the story as the monster is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. So also, you chose a very interesting time. This is this is the dawn of World War II, mm-hmm. which this is setting. So, are you? Is it obviously a setup because we have? Um, I. It's not really a spoiler. It's kind of at the beginning. Byron is is jockeying more or less. He seems like he's going to be a war profiteer, or yeah. he, he wants weapons. And so, is that kind of where you're angling, or what would you think with that? What interested me about that point in history and that place in the world is that you have this total upheaval of of Europe and and eventually the world and then in the middle of it you have this pocket of neutrality where um you know the war was certainly impacting things even even that in those early days and continued to in ways that we're only we're even now we're only just starting to learn um just how much uh that the war impacted Switzerland and uh, as a neutral place, but you know, the, the way that you have this, this pocket of relative safety in the middle of all this, this kind of looming chaos and change and war and violence. And it just made sense that there would be these, these men who looked at all of that from their place of relative safety, their bubble and, and said, I can make a whole lot of money off of this. (laughs) And I, I, I imagine that there were, and, um, 
and uh, Mr. Byron is kind of the 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 fictional representation of that. But uh, you know, he's just he's somebody that you look around even now and you see yeah. people like this everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you see them making these selfish decisions and angling and 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 exploiting our fears and exploiting our prejudices and and the way that we look at each other and people who are different from us. And they look at that and they say, "This is going to make me a whole lot of money if I <laughs> if I can spin this the right way." And so that's that's really who Mr. Byron is. And uh, he he kind of shows his cards right at the beginning there. Um, in his first conversation with Francis and tells her exactly who he is. And um, so I think that's, that's, but that's, you know, World War II uh, and and especially right as it was kicking off. um, I just imagine that as a time where there were a lot of opportunists who were starting to look ahead and say, you know, if I lay the groundwork now, I'm going to, I'm going to make a fortune. This is going to make me. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's pretty um, common within like books, like, aimed at young people that like the adults tend to be um, e- the sort of like the antagonists, whether it's because they're ignorant of like the secret world that kids are aware of, or whether it's that they're like just intentionally, um, you know, villainous. And I feel like, you know, Byron obviously leans towards like intentionally villainous. Um, but then you have like, you know, the constable who has a kind of a mix. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, there's, part of him that is like i mean obviously he's kind of like hung up in like religion and like mob mentality and like you know concerned about like blasphemy and but there's also yeah he's just like you know a cop who sees like a street maybe a little overzealous but right yeah and you know his he is i think um you know he's got the that kind of zeal in him already and i think that's that you know he he kind of has this grandiose idea of of who he is and what his role is um but the monster and just the idea that that the monster it's possible to to do something like that to create something like that i think is kind of the spark that ends up making his that that zeal turn into something that's a lot more um a lot more dangerous but but even you know even francis herself you know as he's as she is chasing the monster, he's, he's chasing her. And as the monster sows chaos and destruction just by being what it is and, and who it is, he's, he sees all that and he, he doesn't believe that there is a monster. So he thinks it's her and she's coming down from this great mansion and causing all this, all these problems. And, um, and he just, just, he won't stand for it. He, he just can't handle it. And he just, he, she ends up, becoming a target of of this zeal um even before the monster really ignites it and turns it into something else but um but yeah the the adults in this book i think there are there there's risks with making the adults you know most if not all the adults in the book kind of these these antagonist characters but at the same time i remember as a kid when when I would look at the actions of adults and the choices that they made and the things that they said, uh, the things that they tried to do or convince me of or make me do, it really, it's hard not to, to look at adults as a kid and, and not feel some sense of antagonism. You know, it's like they're, they're making these choices that I would never make because, you know, I haven't had to, I don't, 
I haven't had the challenges or the the responsibilities. I haven't been responsible for other people or the stresses of having to provide for anybody or, um, you know, or choose between one thing or the other. And so it's easy as a kid to, to see those choices and kind of that moral grayness and, um, and, and see it as something bad and something to be avoided, or I'm not, you know, I'm not going to turn out that way. That's not going to be me. And so there's a lot of that, I think kind of, um, kind of plays through a lot of these, these adult characters in the book. And, you know, I, I, I hope that the ones who end up being, uh, the, the helpers along the way are a little bit surprising, to the reader, you know, the, the adults who end up being the ones that, that are helpful and, and, um, and primarily good, uh, are a little bit surprising. Yeah. I mean, even like, you know, along the, those lines, like, you know, at the beginning, Francis almost sees her parents as sort of antagonists. They're trying to keep her inside and, you know, it's, yeah. it's an obstacle. Like, you know, she wants to live her life. She wants to experience the world and, doesn't know the backstory of the, the reasons why her parents are making these choices. And, you know, yeah. obviously they're not, they're not villainous. They love her and they're trying to protect her. Um, but yeah, as a, as a kid, all you see is this is, you know, an obstacle to what I want to do and I'm going to find a way around it. Yeah. And the story is told really from her perspective. And I think that when you're, when you're looking at the world through a kid's perspective, you're going to have uh you know, there, there, there are going to be certain aspects of it that are exaggerated and certain aspects of it that are um, suspicious or dark um, that, that as adults, we might, we might've told the story a different way. Yeah. And you're, you're a parent. So um, I am. How, how did that influence the way you wrote this? You know, it, it, this is my first novel. And so the process of writing this book was a long one. Um, from when the idea came to when I first sat down and actually started typing something out um, to when I started really seeing it as something that I, that was, you know, kind of taking it seriously as something that I might actually finish and, and try to put out in the world and then the publishing process. And it's a long, it's a long journey. And so I think probably from day one to the, the day that it actually hit shelves for readers to, to be able to pick up and read was probably around six years. Um, you know, that wasn't six, six years of writing. It was, it was the whole, the whole experience, the whole process. But, um, but nevertheless, when I started it, my kids were a lot younger than they are now. Um, I've got, my oldest is, is, uh, 15. My youngest is nine. Um, and so, you know, the, the difference between, uh, you know, six, the six years makes a big difference at those ages. Mm -hmm. So I think that what, what's been most interesting is, now that my kids have grown up in those six years and um, are uh, older than Francis and have kind of gone through that, that stage of life, it's been interesting to see how much of the kind of like the anxieties and, and the insecurities and the, the like feelings that Francis has and, and, and dealing, just seeing how much of that is reflected in them in ways that, that I kind of didn't expect. You know, I remember being that age uh, at least I feel like I remember being that age. I don't know how much of it I've kind of reinvented as the, as the years have gone by, but, um, but having to think that through and, and kind of take that and, and filter it through a character that is, that is not a lot like me um, and not a lot like my kids. It's been interesting to see the ways where they're, they're the, the kind of the, the paths cross or like the, 
um, where the parallels are drawn and, and the way they mirror each other um, unexpectedly. It's been a lot of fun. It's also been validating because I think that seeing my kids and, and uh, seeing them grow up and the things that they're dealing with, I think it's it's validated some of the um, the things that that I've put on the page for Francis. And I, I'm hopeful that they're able to see those things, if not when they read the book now, you know, someday when they have the the benefit of hindsight like I do, um, <laughs> they'll be able to see some of that and, and the way that they were reflected there. Right. So going back to Francis, so she's uh, she's definitely she plays with gender roles as far as her dress and everything is concerned. So yeah. how much of that was like intentional or just you, this was the character and it just sprang out of her naturally? Yeah, it really was not, it was not intentional at all. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because again, six years ago when I was writing this, I don't, I don't even know that I was as aware of the, um, I, I don't think that the conversation ab- about gender roles and gender identity and, and things like that, I don't know that I was as aware of it even as I am now. You know, I, I, I now know so many people who are, who identify in, in, in all sorts of different ways and who express themselves in all sorts of different ways. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I did then, you know, six years, six years ago, it's like something that um, I've learned a lot of, I learned a lot about since then. And so it really, but it was really something that came naturally for the character and um, was not something that was intentional or, or driven by any kind of, you know, agenda or, or goal or, um, or even really an, with a, a, an endpoint in mind, just something that felt really natural for her. And, um, you know, there, there are some uh, aspects of who she is and some of the ways that she sees the limits that her um, femininity kind of puts on her or that the society at the time puts on her femininity that are um, inspired by, uh, you know, my wife who, um, as a kid, uh, she wouldn't mind me saying, um, you know, she, she was, you know, she struggled with the idea of growing up to be a woman and the limits that would be put on her and didn't understand why that would be the case. And she really wanted to rebel against that and did that in a, in a, in a you know, some of the ways that she dressed and um, some of the ways that she acted. And, you know, she has been really great about kind of talking about that and helping our kids, you know, explore how they think and feel about who they are and about gender and about society in ways that I think um, it, it would have been so helpful for, you know, our generation to have mm-hmm. been able to grow up with with that kind of understanding and encouragement. So I'm, I'm really excited about my kids generation i think that they they've got something that we maybe as uh, you know i'm in my 30s something that we kind of started to discover but really didn't have the didn't feel comfortable or didn't feel like we had the freedom to discover or or explore they 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 feel no such constraints and uh, it's really exciting to watch them grow up and just um be who they are whatever that means and and uh, you know i learn so much from my kids and their friends Fair enough. And I appreciate that we have a character like Luca that just kind of rolls with it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, whatever. You're my friend. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. We all need a Luca. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, that that all kind of culminates in like the swimming scene. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we've seen um, Francis's anxiety and crowds and stuff. And then like she, I think because of the time she spent with Luca and in Hobbes 
to a degree. Um, you know, she gets undressed there to go swim and like there are kids that are kind of looking at her strange, but she seems, you know, the anxiety doesn't like overwhelm her and she's just like, she's with this friend that she trusts and she feels safe. And yeah, I, I thought that that, that whole swimming scene was, was one of my favorites. It's just, it's beautiful. And, you know, she just kind of floats in the water and kind of like disconnects from her body and is just is, yeah. you know, just is, right. you know, her identity just free of you know any kind of societal constraints and stuff and it's yeah it's a really special scene yeah i love that scene and and uh that was one that you know it it it's it's a very like character driven scene it really is not a a plot driven scene and so it was always on the verge of the chopping block at throughout like the editorial process and um you know in revisions and um but it was always a scene that I really insisted stay and feel is really important to Francis' story because it's really where it's really a turning point for her, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, you know, I think you, you put it really well. She kind of gets to just disconnect from, you know, who she's been, who she's expected to be, who other people want her to be, who she wants to be. And she just floats and she gets to, to just kind of exist for those, you know, precious couple of hours before the adventure continues. And, uh, and I always felt that that was really important for her and really important for her story. So I was really excited that it, that it remained in the manuscript and, uh, now is, is part of the story forever. Yeah. I didn't even think, yeah. As soon as you said that, yeah, of course it's not, it's not part of the, like the train tracks of the plot. So of course Mm -hmm. it would be like at risk of, of not making it in, but yeah. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right. It, even though it doesn't forward the plot, it's very important to Francis's development that that gets you to the end of the plot. So yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you saved it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm glad that I'm glad that uh, that it's resonating with people because you know again that that scene was really important to me and important to the character, and so it's great to to kind of get a sense for how people are reacting to it now that they're it's out in the world and people are reading it. Yeah. So let me ask you this. So we have a Professor Grimma. Do we have a Dr. Frankenstein in this world? Does this Dr. Frankenstein exist in this world? I think that, yeah, I I think that the, that her, that Francis's great grandfather, Albert Grimma, he's really um, the closest that the world has, has gotten to one um, at that point. And so, Francis being the one who, uh, you know, really unexpectedly ends up, uh, you know, succeeding where others have failed and uh, being able to kind of take the final step and solve the, solve the, solve the equation and um, really kind of unlock the key to, to reanimating this, this monster and, and creating life where there wasn't one. So I think that uh, her great grandfather got close, but never, but died before he really was able to succeed. And her exploits are really the, the that final step. So she kind of gets to be that Doctor Frankenstein, but right. in a in an unexpected way, and in an, in a way that's kind of all her own. Right. Exactly. So uh, aside from that, then, is there a Frankenstein movie from like 1930? <laughs> Does that exist in this world? Um, I guess, I guess not. I guess it couldn't really, you know, I think, uh, I think that in, in the reality of Francis's world, um, 
you know, again, not not everything is uh, is purely historical. Um, you know, Hobbes' existence alone, I think, kind of uh, lets you kind of gives you a, a barometer for um, for how close her reality is to our own. But um, having that that blend of of real and fantasy. Um, and as she kind of continues in her adventures, um, there's uh, uh, the the sequel, the the second book in the series, is um, is I, my my final draft deadline is at the end of this month, so it's oh. I'm very much like right in the middle of of finishing that up, but um, getting to kind of play with that reality uh, and that world in a in another in a kind of a different way and and from a different angle has helped to kind of flesh it out and kind of see where the where the constraints and the boundaries are but no i think that the this, the world of science in francis's world is uh is really the that's the playground for all this it's really less of a hollywood thing and more yeah. of a um you know the scientific community is far beyond uh, that that's where the the magic is happening well I, I would say like of course it couldn't exist in this world because you know people haven't learned from the movie and we've got like right, mob mentality and everything but then i mean you think about the real yeah. world that we live in and people haven't learned yeah. from so uh, <laughs> i guess <laughs> that, that doesn't really track but um it, so I, that was something i was going to ask you about so you have a sequel in the works then and yeah. that's um, yep. Yep. So, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm hoping to finish it up by, uh, December 1st and, uh, but it, it's slated to come out next summer. And so we're going to be, uh, announcing the title and revealing the cover and all that good stuff in hopefully, um, right after the new year, I think is the, is the plan, okay. but very wow. excited. Um, it's definitely a, um, an expansion of, of Francis's world and um, gets to play with a lot of the relationships, you know, with her parents that, that are explored a little bit in the book, but um, kind of gives a, a, a new playground for her to explore her relationship with her parents and, um, and meet some new friends and not so friendly new people along the way. <laughs> but do we have some uh, not so friendly? I mean, we have a few probably not so friendly old people coming back. <laughs> But yeah, yep. I, you know, a lot, a lot of new people, um, uh, and there are uh, there are some some old friends and enemies that will um, that will pop up again uh, to give her trouble in ways that either directly impact her or maybe impact her in ways that she's not quite aware of yet. Right. And by the way, do you know if the same artist is going to be doing the the cover of the new book? Yes, Brandon Dornan. Yeah. He is uh, just an incredible artist, and so we are uh, really excited to share what he's doing for book two. Um, just couldn't have been happier with the cover of this book. I, you know, when when we started the process of uh, of imagining the cover and and you know the some of the the things that we share with Brandon that we wanted expressed on the cover and and um, just to kind of like give him an idea of, of what we were looking for. Um, it really came down to, you know, let, let the city, like show the, show the city, show the character of the city and kind of give that sense of the, the scale of, you know, where Francis starts and, and then her journey through the city. And he, he just captured it so perfectly. It's just such a great cover. I'm, I'm just so happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like yeah, like you said, that's that's the thing is like having having them centered so small. You know, it it 
puts you in, in you know like how you felt when you were a kid and just the world right. was so big and you know i mean yeah it's uh it really draws you into the story so yeah it's a great cover for you know i know we're not supposed to judge books by their covers but right. it, it <laughs> definitely yeah. <laughs> yeah. In this case, I say go for it because I yeah. feel like it represents the story really well. You know, I think it actually captures the tone and the and kind of the 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 scope of the book really well. And so, um, you know, if you like the cover, I think that you'll like the story. I think that they they really do uh, they really do go hand in hand. Well, we're definitely excited about the yeah. the new one. That's going to be. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be uh, watching for that. Yeah. As as news comes out, we'll definitely be keeping listeners updated because. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you have at least one other kind of project that you're kind of constantly working on. Um, do you have anything else you want to share? Yeah, well, uh, right now, um, we are in the middle of Die November, which mm-hmm. is a monthly or an annual holiday, I guess, tradition um, <laughs> that uh, my wife, Susan, and I started uh, about 10 years ago now. It's actually the 10th anniversary of, uh, of the first Die November. But uh, we have a band of plastic dinosaurs that uh, come to life every year and cause all sorts of messes and chaos and destruction in our house. Um, started in 2012, and it's now uh, spread to plastic dinosaurs in more than 60 countries around the world. And we've got a series of picture books, the What the Dinosaurs Did uh, series, that uh, that we um, just last year came out with, the, th- the third in the series, What the Dinosaurs Did the Night Before Christmas. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're right in the middle of that. So um, the dinosaurs have been... Uh, they've been cheating at uh, battleship. Uh, <laughs> they have been uh, creating precarious towers of books. Uh, they have been surfing in the bathtub. Um, <laughs> they have been going to war with uh, tin robots using um, projectile toast okay. and um, all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. When, when we were originally talking and you mentioned it, I was like, I'm not familiar with this. I'm going to have to look this up. And I was like, this is, this is such a fun idea. And it's like, you know, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people know about like Elf on the Shelf, but this it's feels so much. That. Yeah, because it's, it, there's no, uh, there like, it's not that the, the elf is watching you. There's no surveillance. It's just right. yeah. joy. It's just childhood. It's just fun. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's yeah. just fantastic. No, nobody believes us, but um, we genuinely had no idea that Elf on the Shelf existed when we started this. And it wasn't until people were like, oh, like Elf on the Shelf. And so right. we were, we were looking into it. And, um, and yeah, the dinosaurs don't, um, they're, they're not trying to spy on you and make sure you behave. That is, that is definitely not what they're doing. Um, if anything, they are terrible influences on children. Um, they should be. As they should be. They, they really are. The dinosaurs are um, children without limits. They are children without consequences. They are what children would be with, um, I imagine, without any kind of parental guidance whatsoever. So um, it's a lot of fun to see what they, what mischief they get into and how the, uh, the human children around them react. This is interesting because we've had a, another author, well, Don Glute, who's big into dinosaurs, but also big into Frankenstein or Frankenstein <laughs> stuff. Must be some kind of a yeah, primal a connection between the two. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, the, the dinosaurs come to life 
once once a year. Um, they're they're plastic and inanimate until then, and then suddenly they're alive and causing all sorts of havoc. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are certainly some parallels to to Frankenstein there. They also are very childlike and um, don't always know their own destructive powers. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess maybe there's there's more more parallels than I probably realized until right now. Fair enough. Well, the, I mean, the parallels with the the book are there as well with, you know, I mean, it's about children sort of unchecked away from their parents sort mm-hmm. of getting up, you know, getting into trouble and, uh, you know, having having their own like run of the world, basically. Yeah. And it, you know, doesn't always go as planned. There's, <laughs> there's fun and there's danger and there's all sorts of, there there. Francis certainly makes plenty of messes along the way. So absolutely. <laughs> her, her poor, uh, prior uh, babysitters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, the, <laughs> Hobbs being the, the, just the latest in a long line mm-hmm. of tutors and caretakers who Francis has absolutely driven off. Um, <laughs> he's, he's not the first to lose their head, although he might right. be the first to do so literally, but, uh, yeah, she's, she's certainly, um, as a, as a well, she's well practiced at, at causing all sorts of problems (laughs) as children should be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I say that as someone who does not have children, children, (laughs) as as someone who has plenty of children, I can tell you that, uh, that, yeah, they, they definitely know how to cause trouble. (laughs) So obviously as a parent, that obviously had some bearing on the story as well, coming especially from Victor's side. Is there something that you drew from that particularly or? Yeah, I don't know that, I don't know that there's much that's autobiographical in the story, but Mm -hmm. you know, the, the ways that I think as an author, the ways that, that my experiences end up in the story, I had to try and articulate this recently. And what I, what I came up with was, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the vibes that you get into the story. It's like you, you have these experiences as a kid or as a parent and you feel these things, you know, and, and you, you have these, these emotional reactions to things. And in my case, at least, I feel like it's not the experiences themselves that end up um, being drawn on in the story, but it's kind of those feelings that you feel and those, those ways that those experiences impact you and, and the ways that they, they, cause you to, to think differently or um, the ways that they you kind of internalize them a little bit. That's what ends up in the story. So I think, you know, with Victor, there's probably plenty of that, that, that is, is kind of that the way that he cares for her and worries about her. And, you know, he knows that there are, that she has uh, unique challenges and, and she know, he knows firsthand how, how fragile she is and how, but yet how strong she is and wants to be. And so the way that he tries to care for her, you know, I think that that is something that I can certainly relate to. So that, that, that feeling of really just wanting to take care of this kid and wanting what's best for her and knowing that, that he's doing it in a way that is frustrating her and that is limiting her. And that is that, you know, she's chafing against it. You know, that's a hard thing as a parent, you don't want them to, see you as an obstacle you know you don't want to be standing in their way you want to empower them to to be the best version of themselves but uh it's not always easy to figure out how to do that and the the ways that as a parent the ways that you 
that you choose to address challenges or issues in a, in a kid's life, whether it's something that they need to learn or it's something that, um, you know, they are a problem that they're causing for themselves or for others, you know, whatever the case might be, you do the best you can. And six times out of 10, maybe in a good year, <laughs> they're going to really not like you for it. And you just hope that someday they look back and like, man, I'm glad that my parents forced me to do this or didn't let me do that or were constantly reminding me of this or that. But yeah, you know, it's it's the balance of wanting what's best for them long term and wanting to be able to connect with them, you know, short term in the moment. Um, any you know, on any given day, and those two things are often at odds with each other. And I think Victor uh, and Mary both experience that in in very different ways. I think they have very different personalities and approaches to Francis, but. Um, I think their their goal and their intention is the same. Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like, you know, as I get older, you know, I feel like, you know, like you said with, so like as a kid, there were some things my parents did that I was, you know, good with. And then there were things that, you know, I, I that frustrated me as a kid. And as I got older, I was like, oh, I see, you know, their good intentions here. But I think even as I get even older, I start to even realize like, the things they did that aren't defensible, the things they just completely failed at you know they're just yeah it happens you know and and i i can even give them grace for that you know like yeah even this times where i i as a kid was actually probably in the right and they were wrong I, it's still i understand like i understand where they're coming from or or that you know we're all imperfect and and we're gonna make mistakes so i'm sure that you know like something like in you know mary in this that kind of it keeps pushing francis to be a little bit more um like gender conforming and it's like Right. That she's she's in the wrong there, but I understand where she's coming from and like where she feels like she's helping Francis and, and you know, theoretically as as Mary and Francis grow older together, I'm sure that they will come to some sort of uh, understanding uh, yeah. you know, in time. Yeah, and what I love about Mary is that um, from Francis's perspective, Mary doesn't have very many redeeming qualities. And so in the story in the book, um, I feel like Mary you could read you could read it as Mary really getting short shrift um, compared to Victor because the way that Francis sees Mary and the way she sees Victor um, are very different. And I think that she has a lot more warmth towards her father than she does towards her mother. Um, but I think uh, my hope, at least, is that a, a parent, as a parent reading this, or even just um, you know as a, as an adult reading this, um, to be able to kind of see where um, Francis's perspective might not be entirely reliable when it comes to Mary. You know, Mary's doing the best she can. She has taken an approach to the challenges in her life. And she um, has, you know, she's had some success with that approach. And she's trying to, um, she's trying to share that approach with Francis and say, look, this is how you got to do it. This is how I did it. And so that's how you got to do it. Yeah, from um, her perspective, she's sharing what what works as far as right, she knows. Right. This is what worked for me. Mm-hmm. And so this is what's going to work for you. And, you know, what she's maybe not as good at is seeing that Francis is very different from her and that, um, you know, she might need her own approach. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to the, the, the books and your, your plans for the future, 
how how many are we talking here? Maybe if you if you could say that, I don't know if you're allowed to. Sure. Well, there's always you know there's always some ambiguity in the in the mm-hmm. publishing world. Um, there there's, there will definitely be a sequel, and that's going to be uh, that's slated for next summer. And then I'm hoping to be able to cap it off with one final book that will uh, kind of wrap up her saga okay. in a satisfying way. The plan has always been kind of I, I'm not much of a um, I don't like to, to set my plans in stone and say, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that and then I'm going to do that. But I think that for Francis, I always kind of had a sense for the beginning, the middle and the end, mm-hmm. um, how exactly I navigate through the beginning and the middle and the end was always a little bit more, uh, you know, nebulous and, and flexible. But um, the uh, this this book that I'm finishing up now and that we'll be releasing next year is is very much the middle part of the story. And, uh, and so I think that there is still one more story to tell after that, that kind of shows the, the completion of this, this part of Francis's journey and the other characters that, you know, her friends that she's made along the way. Okay. So in that case, do you also plan on maybe playing around in that world a little, little bit more after the, after the last story is told for Francis? Yeah, I don't know. I, there are a lot of, a lot of the, um, the characters that she interacts with, um, were a lot of fun to write. And, uh, you know, in particular, I think that there are all sorts of possibilities for, uh, you know, Francis's kind of uh, sidekicks, Luca, Fritz, and Hobbes, um, and adventures that they could have that would be maybe have a, of a slightly different tone than Francis's stories. (laughs) Um, But, you know, a lot of that, and there is a lot of the sewer man, Mr. Ganji, uh, that is a character that uh, has been one, you know, one that I've been kind of um, playing with and 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 kind of building up uh, for for years um, before even uh, starting work on Francis and the Monster. So he is somebody that uh, I have put a a disproportionate amount of time and thought, and I don't know what it is <laughs> about him, but uh, he's a great. Uh, yeah, character. I just. <laughs> that character has always fascinated me and was a ton of underwrite. And uh, so I think that's, that's one place where, um, you know, having, having some, some spinoff stories for Mr. Ganji in some form, probably a shorter form than a novel, but uh, I think that would be a lot of fun to do. Oh yeah. I mean, you, you gotta love an ambiguous character. They may be friend, <laughs> they may be foe, who knows, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Either way they're, they're absolutely creepy um <laughs> yeah whether they're being friendly or not they are they're a total creep so <laughs> we're definitely very very uh very much looking forward to uh hearing the rest of francis's adventures and and whatever comes after that we'll, we'll definitely be uh watching to see where you yeah. where you go next yeah i appreciate that so i guess do you want to tell people where they can find you and uh, where sure. they can find the book yeah, so uh, you can find me uh, and information about the books at reeftuma.com. Um, that, that'll have all of the links to order the book, um, ways to contact me, and um, where you can find me on social media. Um, but you can also, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter, and uh, you can find me at reefup, so R-E-F-E-U-P. Um, and uh, would love to hear from you, and always available for uh, school visits and library visits for kids who are, um, you know, ages usually fifth grade through middle school. And um, the announcement for book two 
we're hoping will um, I'll be able to share that uh, within the next few weeks or just after the holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, very excited to be able to uh, make that announcement and tell you all about book two. Um, so you'll have to wait just a little bit longer for that. Um, but uh, yeah, we're uh, I- I'm excited about it and can't wait to get that one out in the world. Yeah, yeah, we're we both. I, I think it's pretty clear from the conversation, yeah. but we both really, really enjoyed this this first book. So I, I'm definitely going to be uh, keeping my eye out for the, the the next one, and and hopefully the next one after that as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We had a yeah. had a lot of fun talking to you. I appreciate you taking the time out to to do this. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, been really enjoying all of the Frankenstein content that you guys have been putting out in the world. So keep it up. I'll keep listening. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I, yeah. I really appreciate that you're uh, you're listening. That that means a lot. All right, Anthony, where can they find us as well? Um, yeah, so you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the Frankencast. You can email us at the Frankencast at gmail.com. Um, we're also over on Patreon patreon.com slash the Frankencast. And, you know, we'd love to hear from, from, you know, anybody about anything, you know, we'd love to hear what you all think about the book. Um, hope, mm-hmm. you know, people go out and check it out. Cause, uh, we highly recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yep. And uh, as always, any interactions, good interactions. So for the most part, uh, <laughs> yeah. So other than that, I guess to be continued. Thanks for listening.